A good Monday morning to you on this November 15th. You're tuned into Real Talk. Thanks for making the download. Thanks for showing up live. However, you're accessing the show. We appreciate it. It's presented by the team, as you know, at Bitcoin Well and uh, has been since day one. You can find them online. If you just go through the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com, you'll find Bitcoin Well right there. And this is your link. If you ever have a question about Bitcoin in particular, but maybe you have a question about Ethereum or something else, they're easy to find. You go to the sponsors tab, like you can see here at RyanJesperson.com. You click on Bitcoin Well, and it takes you right to their website, BitcoinWell.com. It's Canada's non-custodial Bitcoin company. Not your keys, not your coins. Secure, quick, fast, easy, reputable at BitcoinWell.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Big day in our home province of Alberta. Good morning to those of you tuning in across the country. Perhaps you're coming at us from a, a jurisdiction where, you know, you already have a child care deal in place with Ottawa. Perhaps you're from the, the provinces or the territory that has a deal already, or, or maybe you're coming from one of the so-called holdout provinces. The prime minister in the city of Edmonton today, we're doing this live at 830 Mountain Time, 1030 Eastern. So two hours from now, the prime minister will be joined by the deputy prime minister, Christia Freeland, and uh, by Minister Karina Gould, uh, the minister her families, children, and social development. She's going to be joining me, by the way, in about 15 minutes time here on the show. We'll be talking to the federal minister leading up to the announcement. So I'm not sure how many details she's going to give us. We'll find out exactly what it's worth and, and what the implications are. But she may hold her cards close to her chest. We'll find out it's a significant deal in particular because the two different levels of government, in addition to being somewhat adversarial and in varying degrees and, and with various temperatures if you've paid attention to the dynamic between the the alberta provincial government and the federal government the trudeau liberals and the kenny conservatives you know what i mean uh, it's not always been amicable but this was an example where people you know like citizens families were saying we need these two levels of government to work together we need the province of alberta to be able to work with ottawa to get a deal done and it appears as though that's what they've done so we're going to get the deal from the minister coming up in a, in a little bit and of course we're paying attention to what everybody's saying online you know a whole bunch of you are saying this is great this is great news this is really good news for families if it means $10 a day child care, if it means affordable child care, that's good for the economy. It's good for families, period. Others, of course, have more partisan interpretations of, of what's going on. Some of you, of course, understandably still have questions about what's going on and will endeavor to answer those. You can always be in touch with us, especially this is one of the benefits, really, of course, of checking out the show live if you're tuned in live, you can contribute and, and, and submit your questions for consideration in our live chat on YouTube. Of course, on Mixler as well. We stream live on the Mixler audio app and you can find us there and you can always send us an email to talk at RyanJesperson.com. We'll be getting to one of your emails coming up later in the show with positive reflections presented by the team at Kubi Energy. In about five minutes time, we're going to be talking to Dr. Tom Keenan. He's the author of Techno Creep. 
the surrender of privacy and the capitalization of intimacy. I'm going to pick his brain about an upcoming announcement from the federal government about whether or not Huawei technologies based out of China will be excluded from Canada's 5G network. We're going to talk about the future of tech and the politics of tech and the politics of business. And and of course, this is a conversation that more and more Canadians will be having, but we're not 100% convinced that we're all up to speed enough on some of the nuances that need to be discussed here. Like how much privacy really is at risk? How much influence does the Chinese government, for example, really have to exert on Huawei, on a company that operates in 180 countries? A little later on in the show, other discussions on things that matter to you, some some great and powerful speakers, some new books that are out, and we'll review our most recent question of the week that's coming up themed on Remembrance Day. Our question of the week posted now by way of our website, ryanjesperson.com, leads up to the first year anniversary of Real Talk. That's coming up on November 23rd, and we're all really excited about that. Of course, the producer of the show, Sarah Hoyle, is always keeping a keen eye on other stories making news today, and it would appear that Western Canada, I saw it West, I saw it dubbed as West Denial Virus. Western Canada, in particular, Alberta and Saskatchewan, seems to have cooked up a Delta-based or a Delta offshoot variant of COVID-19. True story. And it was actually called uh, right here on Real Talk back in July. You're talking about our conversation with Dr. Obaka Ogbogu, uh, who joined us on July 29th. Uh, we hate to be right and I'm sure that Dr. Ogbogu would hate to would mm-hmm. hate to say I called this because he'd rather see this not happen at all. Uh, but this is uh, Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu on Real Talk back on July 29th of this year. We're cooking a variant in Alberta. That's what we're doing. We're cooking one. And when we're done cooking it and it comes out, we don't know what it's going to manifest. So what does this mean now? This is I mean, people are saying that there are important lessons here to be had for the rest of the country. This is maybe a consequence of allowing a virus to spread unchecked. What do people need to know right now? They're not quite sure, you know, if it's going to be uh, just replicating the current risk of the Delta variant or if it's actually a greater threat to, well, us and yeah. everyone else, because as we know, uh, the, the virus doesn't care about borders and doesn't yeah. care about timelines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're kind of like, ah, I don't care. I'm uh, I'm going to spread. So we've done exactly what he said. We've cooked up our very own variant. It's called AY25 and AY27. Hopefully this is something, hopefully, hopefully it fizzles out. Hopefully, fingers crossed. But as we've learned over the past year and a half, two years, that's not always the case. And I think it's just more than anything. I mean, it's a reminder of a lot of things. And and the more, uh, how do I say this, newsworthy that this becomes, the more we'll talk about it. Mm. Um, but I think it's also a good reminder to all of us that, that, that this is always going to be a thing. COVID-19 is always going to be around, you know, the, the, the focus. And I guarantee that public health officials and probably politicians, too, over the next while in commenting on this, we'll be reminding people our best defense against this is going to be vaccines. And social distancing and, uh, you know, all the things, masking, yeah. like all the things that we've known tried and true. But less masking and less distancing, the more vaccines. I'm right. just not sure. I'm just I'm just I think we probably get to a point where like, where do you hit the uh, the saturation? 
not critical mass. I don't want to use the wrong words here, but where do you hit that set? Where do you hit the point where you're like the majority of people that are going to do this have done it? Right. And the majority of other people are, are, are just that's not going to be their thing. They're just not going to get vaccinated regardless. Right. I guess it's it's the idea, like the actual concept, not like the misinformed concept of herd yeah. immunity, where enough people get vaccinated, where the folks that can't get vaccinated um, aren't impacted. Uh, the, the transfer is not happening um, at the, the high rate that it has been. So. Yeah. That's that's the goal. Fingers crossed. Lisa is paying attention to this child care announcement today. She's watching us live. Thanks, Lisa. She says, I'll celebrate when I see the deal. All right. She says, I have hope seeing as how the PM is part of the announcement, but I can't help but be skeptical about anything this provincial government does. Smurfy, by the way, I'll, I'll address this. I'll address this. That makes it sound very serious. It's not very serious. Smurfy says, I thought Jesper was going to be on with Rosie Barton on Sunday. Did I miss it? Didn't miss it. Happens in the business. I got bumped. Her producers say, you'll be back. I said, I'll be available whenever you need me. That's cool. We bump people sometimes. It's poetic. It's it's a good reminder when I get bumped from shows to be like, right, we bump people. This is what it's like. But she's got a fast moving show. Things happen. It's always great to be in the mix and to be considered. We appreciate it. I was laughing with her producer. I said later, I said, I knew I shouldn't have mentioned that on Friday's Real Talk. I knew I should have waited till Saturday to tweet about it. But I couldn't help myself. I was excited. What do you want me to do? We're also paying attention. To, of course, we've been keeping an eye on COP26. And uh, we on Friday, I think it was. Um, got into you know UN Secretary General's comments wasn't that Friday I think it was Thursday or Friday talking about like listen if we're going to do this you got to yeah, do it Friday. now right we got to take this seriously the timeline is now yeah yesterday I would have been these, ideal you know kind of these kind of these uh, closing ceremony type vibes where everybody says okay what did we learn what did we decide what are we going to take back to our respective countries our respective you know halls of power and what's policy going to look like how is this going to become real you know with regards to kyoto and paris and all of the you know we remember all these cities names what's glasgow going to look like and how will it resonate years from now how how do you characterize in your personal opinion you know some of the accomplishments or non-accomplishments you know you you've obviously hoyles you've been clear which is great you know you 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 were you were you had high expectations or at least you wanted to see ambitious uh, policy proposals and agreements i mean my response to everything is kind of wah wah it's been I, I had high hopes that, you know, folks would actually come to the table after seeing what a devastating year it's been for yeah. forest fires and flooding and hurricanes and et cetera. You know, the list goes on and on. That has not been the case that has not, you know, actually uh, motivated countries to make lasting promises that are actually enforceable and i think the biggest thing that's just like the punch to the gut is that india you know in the final days said oh we're not going to we want to change the wording it's not that coal is going to be phased out it's that it's going to be phased down yeah so it's it's made it even weaker and limper but isn't that is this this is a step in the right direction i mean i guess <laughs> Right. We don't have time to do steps no, but like yeah, I'm just no, and, and respectfully, I'm respectfully. And I love and this is where you and I disagree and we disagree. And it's called oh, real talk and all that. But you say we don't have time to take steps like that's that's uh, that's not realistic. Like there has to be steps. Right. There has to be steps to be realistic. Like there's industry. There's the world functioning. There's power supplies like there has to be steps. It's totally unrealistic to say it won't be phased out. So I think if you get big polluters like China and India and the states and relatively speaking, Canada to say we'll phase it. I think that's a move in the positive in the right direction if they do it. 
Yeah. But again, there's no reason that they'll do it. And the fact that they're saying, no, 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 we're not going to phase out anymore. We're going to phase down just goes to show that it's like, OK, we'll maybe do it. And if we do it, we're going to do it less. Yeah. And, we, and we've seen countries like like the U.S., for example, pull out of accords. And we've seen can, different mm-hmm. Canadian governments as part of election platforms, different parties say, well, we'll see how we feel about yeah. Paris or we'll see how we we'll see how we feel about those commitments. Right. So you're you're, you're right to say we'll have to see what what those look like. Or we'll have to see what happens. Uh, Dr. Tom Keenan on Huawei in just a second. Hey, 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 before we go any further, big congratulations to our friends at the institution, the outdoors uh, the, the, the house of enthusiasm, the church of the great outdoors, the entity formerly known as Campers Village. Congratulations on an amazing rebrand. Campers Village has become Breathe Outdoors. Same company, new name. You want 10% off your birthday? You want 10% off Parks Canada passes, books, maps, etc.? You can go check them out online right now at breatheoutdoors.ca and you're going to be able to sign up for their newsletter and check out what is different about this incredible company. They've been around for ages, a full century of history, but times have changed. And while they remain a locally owned Alberta retailer, few things have become clear to them. They say that they're a one-stop shop for people seeking to reconnect, recharge, and refresh in the outdoors. I love it. You can check them on line at breatheoutdoors.ca and get this if you visit them at any of their breathe outdoors locations if you spend a minimum of thirty dollars and mention real talk if you spend a minimum of thirty dollars check this out you're going to get a new campers village aka breathe outdoors the new breathe outdoors i love the brand a ceramic mug how cool is this absolutely beautiful perfect for the great outdoors outdoor campfires what have you a breathe outdoors mug is yours if you spend 30 bucks in-house at one of their locations and you mention my name or you mention real talk there you have it very cool stuff all right the federal government expected to be making announcement in the next while i mean a few things have happened and so ottawa expected now to announce policy on Huawei and whether or not Huawei, the Chinese vendor, will be excluded from Canada's 5G network. So what's changed? Well, the Americans expect to see strong policy on China from Canada. Ironic, isn't it? Because it's the Americans that got us in all the hot water with Meng Wanzhou and, and Huawei and the executive and detained. And I digress. It led to the two Michaels being detained and, and being being held in China. And then just a short while ago, those to Michaels, Covering, and Spavor being released and back. So now people say the stakes have changed. And and and, and the Chinese are, are somewhat, maybe kind of sort of handcuffed on the international stage because the Olympics are coming up and they're not looking to cause a big stir. So now's the time for Canada to pounce, to make its move, to make what some people are saying is a no-brainer, an announcement that Huawei will be excluded from that fifth generation or 5G network. Does it make sense? Dr. Tom Keenan is a professor at the University of Calgary in computer security, cyber warfare, the digital divide. He's the author of Techno Creep. It's great to have him on the show. It's nice to see your face. Thanks for making time for us. Likewise. Good morning. So these experts, a lot of them are saying this is a no brainer. You got to ban China. They're saying this is this is what the the five eyes allies are doing. The other English speaking countries that are banding together to, to ensure that networks are as secure as possible. Do you agree? 
I do. I do. I have a lot of respect for our spies, uh, the communication security establishment. I've been in there. I've never been in the black cube, the really secret part, but I've certainly been to the CSE and they're very smart. But so are the people in the US, so are the people in Australia and the UK, and they have come to this decision. So point number one, if we let Huawei in, they're going to start not telling us things. They're going to go, well, you know, your national communication system might be owned by the Chinese. And when I say owned, I mean PWNED, which is hacker speak for, you know, owned in that sense. And, you know, the reality is uh, I don't see a lot of reason to let them in except to make nice to China. And I'm not really sure uh, they deserve it right now. So what, what about people? I mean, Huawei itself has taken the position. I've seen executives interviewed several times and they've said, listen, we operate in 180 countries. Uh, you know, we follow the laws in every country. We're an independent company and independent from Beijing, from the government. If, if we didn't follow the laws in every country, we, we wouldn't operate in any of them. That's nice, but you know we're not any country. We're part of the Five Eyes. We have an intelligence sharing arrangement that is very precious, and I would not want to do anything to jeopardize it. I don't want to get all technical on you, but essentially what they want to do is sell Canadian telecommunications carriers, Bell, Telus, and so on, the equipment to build a 5G network, among other things. The problem is that becomes really the backbone of your infrastructure. And, you know, guess what? It could have backdoors. Now, I know people say, look, we can test for those backdoors. There's, you know, we got good engineers in Canada. We'll know if there's anything there. Well, I have seen a technology that is quite remarkable, and I won't go into all the details, but you can have a chip and you test it to death. And then if it's exposed to a certain wavelength of light, the circuiting on the chip changes with the result that now it does something different. I'm not saying Huawei's doing that. I'm saying they could do that because they're pretty smart and maybe a bit sneaky. Tom, this should get people thinking about more than just Huawei and more countries than just China, shouldn't it? It should. It should. I mean, ideally, we would have a company here in Alberta that makes routers and all the stuff that we need. Problem is, we don't. I mean, there's Cisco in the U.S. and lots of Cisco equipment in Canada. We have it at the university, I think. And uh, uh, then there's Ericsson and companies like that. So, you know, there are, it's a pretty specialized thing, but I think it's an opportunity for Canada. You know, people have been talking for a long time about the economic developments of a chip foundry and things like that. And these things cost like a trillion dollars. So it's a big decision. But there's a lot of spinoffs. If you have that capability, I mean, look at Taiwan. One of the reasons Taiwan is so precious is it's where a lot of our chips come from. And as you know, there's shortages of all kinds of things like cars uh, because uh, the chips are not getting through the supply chain. If Canada somehow, and I don't have the magic bullet, I'm not an economic development guy, but if Canada could somehow make our own equipment or even some of that equipment, I think it'd be a lot better than being on dependent on a country that we can't always trust. Tom, how, how secure should the average Canadian feel about data security and protection of privacy and the strength of our infrastructure and the ability of government legislators to stay ahead of issues with regards to effective legislation and privacy protection? I know I'm asking you a million things all at once, but but what should the average no, person no. know? I mean, 
Simple answer. Ask your cousin in Newfoundland how they felt when their hospital system was taken down by ransomware. And they were, I think, very uh, non-transparent about how that happened. I mean, the minister or the deputy uh, premier there kept saying, well, there's a bit of a cyber problem here, you know. Well, it was a lot more than a bit of a cyber problem. We knew it was a ransomware attack. We knew that they're vulnerable. I personally testified in a uh, data privacy, health data privacy case before the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador, and I investigated the system that they have. It's called Meditech, and it actually comes out of the U.S., and lots of people use it. The problem sometimes is the weakest link. So if there's one employee who's dumb enough to think that a Saudi prince wants to give them $5 million or clicks on some porn at work or something like that, it can be a problem. I've got a buddy who designs prisons. And he said, look, I designed these things so they're not on the internet. Only function is push this button and that door opens up. And he said, I come back six months later and somebody has put a network card into my system. And I go, why did you do that? Well, you know, these uh, prison guards are sitting there all day and they're bored and they're not doing a lot but opening and closing doors. So we figured they could order the meals for the prisoners. Well, that's nice. But to do that, they have to talk to the vendor, to Kara or whatever. And as a result, we needed to put in a network card. Well, side effects, unintended consequence. I think when I write a next book, I'll write about unintended consequences. These guys also realized they could watch videos. Now, I will let your imagination and that of your viewers go as to what kind of videos prison jailers would watch, but it ain't Disney videos, let's put it that way. And often those kind of videos come with content, uh, with uh, ransomware and things like that, or malware embedded in it. So sure enough, the prison that was designed so secure because of that one weak link can actually become compromised. So that's something we worry about. Some real talk from Dr. Tom Keenan. I appreciate that. I'll look for the next book. In the meantime, people can pick up your most recent one, Techno Creep, The Surrender of Privacy and Capitalization of Intimacy. It's, it's, been a, it's been a legendary book, Doc. I, I can tell you, I've spoken to you several times through the years. I've, I've had many people reach out. They've picked up the book. It's been a real start. It's been a great reality check for a lot of people. Thanks for being willing to speak with us about Huawei. We know it's something more and more Canadians will be talking about in weeks to come. Thanks, Ryan. You got it. Dr. Tom Keenan out of the University of Calgary. Uh, Minister Karina Gould, federal minister, in just a second on Alberta's child care deal. It's set to be announced in, you know, just over an hour and a half from now. But first, we wanted to tell you about our friends at McBain Camera. You can check them out online at McBainCamera.com. The holiday sales, the Nikon holiday sales are now on at McBain. You can tell your story beautifully with the Nikon Z50 camera, stunning 4K Ultra HD with with 1080p slow motion. It's got that time lapse mode that looks absolutely amazing and so much more. You can flip down the LCD screen to activate self-portrait mode. Perfect for selfies or if you're doing vlogging, you know, video blogging. This is the camera for you. The Z50, the 16 to 50 millimeter lens kit, just under 1200 bucks and includes a free Nikon canvas camera bag. Plus, McBain has extended their 30-day price protection guarantee all the way through to December 24th. You can shop early with confidence. If the price goes down, you're protected there. You can visit one of their six convenient Alberta locations or live chat with one of their team members right now at McBainCamera.com. McBain, create to inspire. 
1030 Mountain, uh, just after noon Eastern time today, the, the governments, uh, Alberta's provincial government and the federal government will announce an affordable child care deal. It's uh, been longly, I, I think, and greatly anticipated. It's safe to say from uh, many Albertans who have been looking to see Alberta get on board uh, with other provinces that have come up with the deal. Uh, Minister Karina Gould, kind enough to make time for us this morning, leading up to the announcement. Minister, as of October, I mean, this is your wheelhouse. This is your portfolio. Speaking on behalf of the federal government, is it fair to say that most people paying attention to the news headlines across the country would say Alberta might be the last? Last one to get on board with this, and that's if Alberta gets on board. What happened to lead up to today's announcement? Well, first of all, Ryan, I'm really delighted to be on the show with you, and I'm even more excited to be in Edmonton today to announce what is this really historic agreement for Alberta families, a huge federal investment. Um, so I'm really, really happy to be here. But I think what it comes down to is that where there's a political will, there is a way. And, uh, you know, shortly after. Uh, I was appointed, which is uh, less than three weeks ago now, um, you know, reached out, had a conversation uh, with Minister Schultz, and we both recognized that we, we, we had a commitment and a will to get this done to make sure that there was affordable childcare for Alberta families. We knew this would be important uh, both for families, but also for children, as well as the Alberta economy. So um, it's been an, a busy, intense uh, couple of weeks, but uh, here we are today. Minister, what can you tell us? Um, I mean, you're speaking on behalf of the Families, Children and Social Development Portfolio. I know that you know the Prime Minister is going to be there today. Uh, the Deputy Prime Minister is going to be there today. Alberta's Premier is going to be there today. Minister Schultz, Provincial Minister, Family Services. So it's a high-profile announcement. Uh, I know that you're going to say, i got to protect some of the details for the announcement itself. But Albertans are going, going to want to know, what is the deal worth? I mean, what does it look like? Does it get Alberta to an average $10 a day affordable child care? What are some of the numbers? Yeah, so I'm, it's, it's never good to totally scoop the prime minister, sure. um, but uh, <laughs> but I can tell you that, you know, the the principles that we put in place, which is, you know, making sure that we are getting to $10 a day daycare within the next five years, expanding spaces here in Alberta, uh, including, um, you know, making sure that we are supporting early uh, childhood educators, um, as well as seeing affordability um over the next year, that's all uh, part of, of today's announcement. Uh, and so this is one of the you know largest uh, federal transfers to Alberta, and we're going to be there for the long term. It's you know it, we've earmarked um, you know over eight billion dollars a year going forward into the budget, um, you know, for the whole Canada-wide early learning and child care uh, system. But uh, this is this is a really exciting day that we're there for Alberta families um, and we're going to be there for the long term. Minister Rebecca Schultz, provincial minister, had had insisted publicly that Alberta's deal run along the lines of what Quebec's deal looked like. Alberta's government was looking for a deal with no strings attached. Alberta's premier didn't mince words. He he described what Ottawa was looking for as an urban nine to five government and union run institutional daycare option. Alberta wanted a straight funds transfer that respected families, for example, with stay at home parents. What can you tell us about how this is structured? Uh, this agreement is structured very similarly to the other eight agreements that we have negotiated across 
the country. But I would say that each of those agreements is also reflective of the local reality uh, in each province and territory. And so this is um, a made in Alberta uh, agreement, uh, recognizing, you know, the unique system that is here, but it also um, meets the objectives and the terms that uh, the federal government put in place for this transfer. So ensuring that affordability, ensuring that quality, ensuring inclusiveness uh, when it comes to childcare, and a priority on not-for-profit um, expansion in the childcare system. But you know, as a as a parent myself with a child in ch- childcare, you know, and I'm from Ontario, but I I know what it's like. I know how expensive it is, and I know that as a parent, what we want is to give the best possible start to our children. And uh, I think that this agreement is going to enable that uh, for for Alberta families. Minister Gould, what would you say is a specific example of, of, of a part of this deal or an element of this deal that most reflects what you described as a, a, the unique nature of Alberta's structure? What's one thing about this deal that's a little bit different than all the other provinces in the one territory? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, what is different is we're understanding kind of the unique makeup of childcare uh, provision in Alberta. Um, you know, there's a lot of rural providers um, in Alberta, and so understanding the flexibility in rural communities as well is important. Um, so it's it's really you know ensuring that we are um, you know supporting the Alberta government to deliver quality, flexible, affordable childcare to Albertans no matter where they live in the province. How important was it that i mean the federal election recent federal election saw alberta send two liberal mps to ottawa one of them now minister of tourism randy bosna who will be there today my understanding is anyway uh how important was it like optically and otherwise for this particular deal to get done did the prime minister make it clear that the deal with alberta was a top priority the prime minister, when he asked me to take on this portfolio, said, get child care done, Karina. Um, and so that meant in Alberta, Ontario, New Brunswick, uh, the Northwest Territories and uh, Nunavut. And, you know, the where you have a dance partner, uh, you can you can get agreements done. And we certainly had one uh, with the government of Alberta following my appointment. And so um, very pleased and excited to do this. And I think the other thing is what I've certainly heard from both George and Randy, the two liberal newly elected Liberal MPs from Alberta, is that this was a top priority for voters at the door uh, during the federal election. And they heard from people uh, both who have children um, that are childcare age, but also people of all ages who just understand that this is important for the economic recovery as well. I mean, we know that women have, you know, had to take a step back in many respects from the workforce that they've um, struggled, families have struggled because, you know, when um, schools are closed or daycares are closed, they have that extra burden of trying to work and care for their children. And so there was a real kind of impetus and push at the doors um, to get this agreement sun, uh, signed and delivered here in Alberta. And I'm I'm so pleased that this is the first one that I get to assign as the new Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Minister, how would you describe the temperature or the nature of the negotiations with the Alberta government? Uh, intense, but collegial. <laughs> This is uh, I wanted to wait till the end of our conversation to mention this, but I do think it's interesting and it's of note, I think, for our audience. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're the youngest female cabinet minister in Canadian history, in the history of the nation. Uh, How does that impact how you approach your job? 
Uh, well, yeah, so I, I, I was, I was the youngest um, ever appointed to cabinet. And I was also the first to have um, a baby while being a cabinet minister. And so for me as a working The first mom, ever? Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the federal level. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I really understand what juggling uh, work and childcare is about, and I know how important it is. And so uh, the other thing I would say is that I've been advocating for affordable childcare since before I was elected. And I know that every time the prime minister saw me coming, he knew what I was going to talk to him about, and it was affordable childcare. So uh, for me, this is a lifelong passion it's one that I'm personally very attached and connected to because I know that it is going to make a difference for our children, for our families, for women in the workforce and their professional development and ability to um, you know, move up uh, in their careers, as well as uh, the incredible impact it's going to have on, on our economy. And, and just you know, one, one fact that I love to put out there is that when Quebec in 1998 went to a universal daycare model. They went from having the lowest female workforce participation in the country to having the highest female workforce participation in the country. So this is like child affordable daycare and quality daycare is a home run because it's good for kids. It's good for families and it's good for the economy. Last question. I promise minister. I just, I can't ignore. There's a trend on our live chat here and, 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 and it's audience members from Alberta that are tuning in live right now, wondering where the checks and balances are, the assurances that this money's going to get to where it needs to go. What sort of assurances can, can you provide that this doesn't just wind up reallocated out of some provincial government slush fund? <laughs> so it was really important for us in formulating the early uh, Canada-wide early learning um, child care system and framework that we get a very detailed action plan from each province and territory with whom we're negotiating an agreement. And we are going to be doing checks uh, throughout. Um, there's an 18-month initial action plan after which uh, the provincial government will re need to resend um, a plan. And we're also striking an implementation committee to work together uh, federally and provincially to make sure that we're delivering for families. Um, and so there's a pretty detailed agreement in here because we want to ensure uh, that the money that is being transferred is going to uh, make childcare more affordable, uh, to make it quality and to make it inclusive. Um, and, uh, you know, the, certainly we've heard the same things from the Alberta government that they also want to deliver for Alberta families. Minister Karina Golden, MP out of Burlington, uh, Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Thanks for your time on a busy morning. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, you got it. That announcement coming up in about uh, yeah 90 minutes or so from now. Uh, the PM's in town, uh, Deputy Prime Minister as well. The Premier will be part of that announcement. So this is a big one. You can let me know what you think about it. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm especially interested in in you know, sort of first person perspectives here from folks that are saying like this is going to be a big deal for us. Right. You know, Tracy says, you know, great job to the minister. You know, you've made a difference for women and their families. This will increase labor market participation. Uh, Linda Ray says increased female participation in the workforce. <laughs> says that's something that scares the bejesus out of Skippy. I don't know. I, I don't know if Skippy's the Alberta premier or not. I'm not sure what <laughs> Linda Ray's getting at, but I think so. Tracy says performance measures must be identified. I'd love to see those made public. Jillian says the original daycare, the $5 day daycare brought in by Quebec was also brought in by a working mom. That's why diversity of voice matters. Kim says that she quit her 
traditional professional track because of the cost of childcare with three kids. Unbelievable. No kidding, Kim. She says, 15 years later, I'm not at all regretful about self-employment while raising my kids, but I wish I would have had the choice. That's well said. Heidi says, that minister is even more of a badass than I originally thought. Heidi Bergstrom, that is. Heidi was uh, talking about child care, affordable child care on our show in its infancy. Uh, not the child care conversation, but the show, I mean. She was on with Ann Castleman, a, a journalist with the Walrus, and they were talking about affordable child care. And Heidi had the interesting position, if I remember correctly, out of Camrose, Alberta, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, central Alberta somewhere. Heidi's she's an accountant and she's a mom. And so she she approached it from the perspective of crunching numbers and also understanding the the pressures that families can face. And you can find that, by the way, in our Real Talk archives. Of course, you can check out all past interviews on our podcast. Easy to find or on our YouTube channel. And thanks to everybody that subscribes there. We really appreciate it. Coming up in just a moment, the radical reverend. This podcast, it's hosted by the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, who has a brand new book out, The Queer Evangelist. And this is going to be a great conversation, I have no doubt. Want to remind you first that these conversations happen because of the ongoing and amazing support of partners of ours like Grand Dog Essentials, Quality Raw Food. It's what we feed our dogs, Moses and Monroe. Maybe you're not making the move to raw right now, but you're open to science-based nutritional approaches to helping your dog achieve optimum health i want to refer you to grand dog's instagram account at grand dog essentials you know there's options you can start including in your dog's kibble bowl if raw is not possible for you right now expose your dog to some fresh food options it can help limit the common effects associated with a kibble diet every little bit of fresh food counts so check them out on instagram serving suggestions like fruit and veg fish or fish oil probiotics enzymes eggs you know adding one egg a minimum of two times a week or even every day can have a huge impact on your dog's health if you know some kibble fed friends that might benefit from this information you you can tag them in that post on instagram at grand dog essentials don't forget the promo code real talk on their website granddog.ca gets you 10 percent off your first time order delivered right to your door Our friends at Athabasca University are Canada's online university. You know what I love about this? You you can go, you can click on the website, AthabascaU.ca. You can learn all about it, you know, about their collaborations, their partnerships. What does their accreditation look like? In other words, if I study via Athabasca University, what does that mean for my career? How are the credentials recognized? You can also search their programs and courses and learn more about what might be a perfect fit for you. Explore the wide variety of distance learning programs and courses. You can try out one course or you could jump into a full program, whatever's a perfect fit for you. They meet you where you're at at Canada's online university. It's AthabascaU.ca. Our next guest, I'm looking forward to this conversation, is an Order of Canada recipient having passed more LGBTQ2S plus legislation than anybody else in Canada's history. More than anybody else. She performed Canada's first legalized same-sex marriage. She was an MPP for Parkdale High Park in Ontario, 
up until just a few years ago. She hosts the podcast, The Radical Reverend. She's the author of a new book, The Queer Evangelist. What a pleasure to welcome to Real Talk, the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo. Thanks for making time for us. Good morning. Congratulations on the book. (laughs) Thank you. And it's fun, Ryan. Thank you for having me. We always look forward to when we get to speak to podcast hosts. We know, number one, technically the audio is going to be fantastic. But hey, you're you're in the business of, of storytelling, aren't you? And you've been in the business of progress across the country for for the better part of your entire career when did you realize that you'd be seen by some as a radical reverend uh well that was the name that was devised for the radio show which is on CIUT 89.5 fm and has been for over 20 years now um and so it just you know i was see alliteration ryan it sounds good um but also i think it represents a reality which is that we wanted to have uh, another voice on the radio we wanted to really highlight voices that aren't normally heard just like you do so i i think that's what's important your life story is absolutely remarkable i mean starting you know probably from inception but with with regards to the story that you've told i mean your teenage years were far from easy you've seen a lot yeah, uh, I left home at 15 and lived on the streets of Toronto. Uh, this is not that unusual for queer kids, you know, kids that don't kind of fit in with their family life, that feel one-off, that haven't had an easy time at school. Uh, so um, it was definitely kind of a dropout situation, but I wasn't alone. There are many on the streets at that point and still are, sadly. Um, it was a little easier back then, I have to say, because, you know, social assistance could pay for a basement apartment ultimately when I finally did get it um, and was and university was cheaper so uh, I was able to kind of make my way um, in, a, in, in a way that kids today uh, have even more difficulty doing but um, but anyway yeah not an uncommon story for LGBTQ youth did you did you know was was faith always a part of your upbringing and, and did you know that you were queer so to speak when you were young were you were you were you attempting to reconcile those 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 two truths concurrently as a young person uh faith was not part of it i grew up in a a social justice kind of agnostic slash atheist household so that was the reality um uh, in terms of being queer yeah i kind of always knew uh i remember though boys chasing me home from school calling me a dyke and and i didn't even know what the word meant back then you know i just knew it wasn't positive um so so yeah i i think most queer folk know from a pretty early age that there's something different with them i remember having a, a you know incredible crush when I was probably six years old on someone in my drama class who looked like you know would be Marilyn Monroe so that was my earliest memory but I also define I define myself as queer so I've also had relationships with men and I think being bisexual um, is also an area that's not talked a lot about uh, as I say often the B is silent in the LGBTQ um, but I decided not to be yeah, there's. A, do, do you think there's a unique? I, I, well, okay. Can I say this as like a, a cis, straight, white, middle class male? So I'll acknowledge that. I think it's important. But but it, it strikes me in, in having conversations, many of them like this one with you today, that the B and the T seem to seem to sort of have their own unique challenges as part of bigger conversations about pride and equality and the like. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. For trans folk who I fought for for all of my political career, uh, for trans folk, especially trans folk of color, it's a whole different issue. Um, 
For bisexual folk, I think that the matter is is really visibility. You know, uh, people don't know we're there. Uh, at one Pride, I remember speaking on by year. I think it was that Pride really kind of focused on bisexual. Uh, bisexuality, and there were like over 200 people in the room, and I said, you know, isn't it amazing? I, I didn't know any of us existed. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, it's the visibility aspect that I think a lot of bi folk uh, don't have in the same way that their lesbian, gay, and trans uh, sisters, brothers, and others have. So I think it's important for us to be out and to out ourselves and to say who we are. It's it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, life on the streets as a, as a teen, and uh, and how that's not unique. As a matter of fact, you know, heart, in a heartbreaking sense, you know, statistically speaking, LGBTQ plus teens are, are disproportionately uh, represented on the street, so to speak, by a wide margin. Um, yeah. If you add religion into the mix, it, it's actually more so as if I need to tell you that. So I'm especially intrigued by your journey toward faith, you know, your journey to become the queer evangelist. Some people might say, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I walked into the United Church of Canada, which is still Canada's biggest Protestant denomination. And the reason I walked in there in 1988 was because they were ordaining at that point openly gay and lesbian folk. So um, so I knew that it was a welcoming place. And that's the reason I walked in. Of course, there were other reasons I walked in. Um, at that point, I had my own business. I was doing very well financially. But, you know, I kind of spiritually, it my moods were dependent on my company's billings every month. And if uh, I'm speaking to any small business people out there, you'll know what I mean. Um, and so if the billings were good, we were happy, you know, if they weren't, not so happy. Uh, and I thought, this is no way to live. There's got to be more to life than this. And the other aspect that got me into church was my son, who was very little at the time. And we were driving around suburbs at that time and saw a large neon lit cross over a church and my son said mom what's that lighted tea for so I thought well, I'm not doing a good job as a parent if my kids don't even know the, the stories that you know not just our stories stories for Jew for Jews for Muslims for Christians the stories that really inspired Shakespeare for example I, that was my thinking is how would they read Shakespeare if they don't know about these stories um, so I, I was pretty green when I walked into church actually about as green as when I walked into political office. Mm. Um, um, but, you know, you learn fast. And I walked into the right church with an amazing minister and phenomenal programming. So that made all the difference. And I hope to replicate that in my own church. Yeah. Well, can, can you tell us about your own church? I mean, can you tell us how it may differ from what people might expect to experience? And, and, and have you had to sort of break some mold or blaze a new trail? I mean, you've been no stranger to that. We'll talk about the first legal same-sex marriage in Canada in just a moment. But what, what is church like in your church? Well, first of all, we're inclusive. So if you walk up, you'll see a great big pride flag. You'll see pride banners. I open every service by saying no matter what you believe or you don't believe, no matter what you've done or left undone, no matter who you are, no matter who you love, you're welcome here. Because this isn't just our church. This is a church of Christ. And in Christ's church, everyone is welcome. So I start every service by saying that because at almost every service, there are new people. And that's what they need to hear. It's 
is that they don't have to sign on to a creed. Uh, they don't have to leave themselves at the door. They don't have to leave their brains at the door. That all of them are welcome as they walk in. And I think that's really important. That's what faith communities should be. And we're certainly not alone in that. Have, have you encountered blowback from, from fellow clergy or from other so-called believers that would say that you're you're watering down, diluting the faith? I mean, you, you know, to have a minister at the front saying no matter what you believe i mean some people would go are you kidding me i mean that's not how i was raised right well certainly you know uh that you don't have to i mean if you look at the people around the table with jesus in the last supper not everyone believed what jesus believed and not everyone was really faithful to to him in fact by the time he died had taken a church of some five thousand whittled it down to a handful of women and then died so in terms of numbers, he wasn't a particularly good evangelist. And just about every disciple, um, starting with Judas, sold him out. So, you know, really uh, what we are about and what all faith communities should be about is, is change, is about the possibility for everyone to reconstruct their lives in a new way and to really have a new focus, which, of course, we think is an important one. Um, and that's open to everyone, no matter what they believe when they walk in the door. And certainly I have shifted over the years. Your question about blowback, of course. I mean, there's not a month that goes by that I don't get some nasty letter from someone. Now that I'm on social media, of course, that happens a little bit more frequently. It used to happen more. So there's been a lot of progress. And a lot of that has to do with our laws changing, right? Mm. Um, and our culture shifting. So over the years, uh, we've seen phenomenal progress on, on the LGBTQ2 plus file. Um, and that has helped. Um, but certainly, you know, when when you pave new ground, when you, you know, pass new laws, are you going to get resistance? Yes, you are. And I say, bring it on. I'm always happy to have those conversations. What was the most? I mean, it's 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, actually, you know, when I think of it, I've got a big smile on my face. I'm like 20 years ago, the first legal same sex marriage. In Canada. And then what that really does is remind me it's probably similar to the residential schools conversation that you're like, it wasn't actually that long ago that it was illegal for same sex couples to marry. So it's also a bit of a kind of a, I think, a, a tough reality check. But when you look back on it, what was the most significant or even most special part of being part of that? You officiated Canada's very first. Well, first of all, are two women of color. Um, so I want to hold that up because mm -hmm. I think that's significant. Um, second of all, a reaction. I mean, the government of Ontario threatened to take away my license. Mm -hmm. um, that would have put me out of work. Um, my very brave board at the church backed me up. Um, but the general United Church of Canada was pretty quiet and silent. So we were genuinely concerned about blowback. And uh, I did, I, I, I joke about this. I said, I do what every good Christian would do under the circumstances I call CBC and a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, the, good, <laughs> the good lawyer was Doug Elliott, who was very active around this file. Uh, both at the, the Supreme Court level in Ontario and other places, and CBC. Um, and so they gave this some press. And guess what? Ultimately, I got an apology from the government of Ontario. It took almost 20 years. Um, and, uh, and the government just didn't act. And, you know, history was on our side because within a year, it was contested at the Supreme Court level and they did win for equal marriage. So uh, the law changed shortly thereafter. Well, you've, you've, you've had, I mean, this, you, you continue to have a very interesting career. Um, you talk to a lot of people that, that you know, uh, engage in social justice, so to speak, and in particular uh, in the clergy. And, and then you add this layer of, 
political involvement. Uh, and by that, I mean elected office, right? Uh, an MPP, as mentioned, provincially uh, representing Parkdale High Park in the Legislative Assembly of Ontario for, for 11 years. Um, how much of a change of pace or how different was that for you with regards to advocacy, lawmaking, and ultimately what led to your appointment to the Order of Canada? Well, um, it, it was certainly, I was very green, had no idea what I was getting into. Like a, a lot of newly elected, um, I learned quickly. Um, but it's, you know, hats off to anyone who takes political office. I mean, this is a 24-7 uh, job. Nobody, there is no such thing as a lazy politician and nobody does it for the money. Most, most folk, especially lawyers, could do better elsewhere. Uh, so everybody's driven by a passion to make change. Now, we, of course, disagree about what that might look like. But I discovered I became known as the queen of the tri-party bill because when I was elected, I was in a third party with very little power as a backbencher. But I discovered that if there is an issue um, that you can get somebody from the other parties to agree on, then you're really ahead of the game. And almost all my bills, I think save one, I managed to pass as tri-party bills, which, you know, the voters love. And at, at the end of the day, they're your boss, um, not your political party. Um, so uh, they liked just to see something happening, something getting done. Uh, so, you know, that's the way I move things forward. And I think there's a lot to be learned. I talk about it in the book. Um, I'm very sad to see that it doesn't happen more often now. What was when I mean, when you sort what, what was that one moment where you were like, I'm running for office? Because that's it's a huge deal. Right. I mean, it's, it's actually quite a I mean, there are so many people that that would be amazing uh, in the political arena and they uh, whether or not they over or underestimate themselves or think they have or whatever. I mean, there, there's this moment where you've got to go and organize. I'm going to get a campaign team. We're going to raise money. I'm going to knock on thousands of doors. And if I get the job, I'm going to give it my all for, for 80 or 100 hours a week. What was like that one tipping point? Well, actually, I had never thought about running for political office. I was clearly always a social justice activist. Um, but because of the legalized same-sex marriage that got performed, there was a lot of press. Um, and I became very well known. Plus, we had built up the church that I was in and to the point that we had a thousand people there on Christmas Eve. Um, so um, political party came knocking is what happened, actually, and asked me if I would consider running. I still had to fight a nomination battle. Uh, but um, when they asked, I thought, wow, that was the first time I'd considered it. Uh, and I asked a couple of people in the congregation of, of different political slants um, what they thought, whether they thought I should run or not. And I remember what they said, um, because they were both right. One said, um, well, getting asked to run for a political party is like getting asked to the prom by the quarterback. It's very flattering, but then you have to spend the evening with a football player. <laughs> so I remember that comment. The other comment was, um, well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't wish that job on my worst enemy, but I think, Sherry, you should run. So as it turns out, both of them were right. Um, but of course, I, I, you know, it's an honor and a privilege to have run and won uh, many times as I did and to serve, uh, that ultimately is is an honor. And and then it's incumbent upon you, I think, to get get things done, to change things. What's your what's your message to to young people, uh, in particular, queer youth uh, that right now don't see a fit for themselves in society as a matter of fact right now i mean i'm hoping that you know there's going to be somebody that hears this they're going to download this podcast and you're speaking you're going to be speaking directly 
to them? I mean, you've walked miles in those shoes. What's your message to that young person? Uh, you know, never sell your, yourself short. Know this. You're absolutely essential. Um, you're perfectly created the way you are. Uh, there is no faith, if you look at scripture, and that's a whole other deep dive for another day, but there is no faith that doesn't tell you that you're just not loved and created for a reason. So discover that reason and go for it. And know this, that your voice is so important that it saves lives. Um, I like to highlight the voices, as you do, Ryan, of people who have changed laws and saved lives. And uh, certainly we need more LGBTQ2S folk to get busy and to do just that. Yeah, I don't want to call it like the next frontier, but like what's the next? I mean, you know, you've championed, as mentioned, the passing of more LGBTQ2S plus bills than anybody in Canadian history, including Toby's Law. Uh, the first transgender rights legislation in North America. What's next? What's the next hurdle? What's what's the next challenge that you look at? You say we've got to address this now. Well, right now, um, we would love to see the federal government do what my bill did in Ontario in 2015, which was ban conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. Conversion therapy, uh, that is the therapy that tries to turn queer kids straight. We know that it ends up uh, in suicide and depression and that it just doesn't work. Um, so we need to ban this practice. We did it in Ontario, but only the federal government can criminalize it. And that's what needs to happen. And I know the bill is before the House, kind of got lost in the election. Um, hopefully it comes back again. I'm sure it will. Um, and uh, let's get that done. So there is that. The The other aspect is, you know, for, for gay men, um, we really need for them pharmacare because we need, you know, if you're HIV positive, you're on some really expensive meds. And I know a number of instances of gay men who cannot work um, because they used to work for themselves and they didn't have a plan that would cover their medications. So we need to make sure that people who can work, do work and want to work um, and don't have to, um, you know, quit work just to be able to go on in Ontario DSP, for example, to afford their medications. Crazy. So, um, so again, those are two big issues I can see right now. And the other issues, of course, are to keep the educational process going in our schools so that there isn't a school anywhere in Canada where a queer kid can't go to the prom as themselves with the partner of their choice and uh, feel safe in doing so. That was definitely not the case in my schools and my history, and that has to change once and for all for all children. Now, when you said gay men, I don't know why, and you went on to talk about pharmacare, which makes perfect sense. I don't know why, but part of me wondered if you might, if you were maybe about to talk about the blood ban, blood donation ban. I know that yes. that's a really huge issue. Yes, and finally, finally, there looks to be action on that yeah. front. So again, thank you to those who have been fighting for it for, for, for so long. I didn't mention it because there is action on that front. So kudos. Sure. <laughs> kudos. There you go. Yeah. I want to circle back to conversion therapy because it's, it's interesting yeah. to, to see someone wearing a, uh, a collar, you know, to be able to speak to a reverend doctor in the context of conversion therapy and hear that it should be banned. And I think you know what I'm getting at, because a lot of the pushback and I, and I think that it's fraught with with red herrings. But a lot of the pushback comes from people that, that say, well, in many cases, these are grown adults that are consenting to religious counsel. Uh, I'm not saying I believe this. I certainly don't. 
but I've heard a lot of it and I know you have too. And a lot of this comes from people saying these are these are grown adults that are consenting to exercising their religious freedom um, to, to participating in prayer and the laying of hands to, you know, help them deal with the temptations that come with the yada yada. You know all what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's somewhat of an unusual position to have a minister saying that it needs to be banned. Well, interestingly enough, the Pray the Gay Away movement um, has uh, kind of er eradicated itself in many instances. Um, Exodus, which was one of the largest in the world, um, the leader of Exodus, who, you know, again, they had chapters all over the world in various uh, in various churches. Uh, it was a Pray the Gay Away movement. And he finally came out, moved in with his lover, his boyfriend, and said, guess what? It never really worked. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so it doesn't work. So that's number one. It doesn't work. Um, and number two, in the process of trying to make it work, you actually destroy souls. You don't help them or save them. Um, and off, very often you destroy the very lives of the people. It leads to depression. It leads to suicide. We know this. So I think any faith person who believes that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, um, who wants to really you know, be in good relationship, will not engage in a practice that they know harms people. I mean, we've made, you know, all sorts of advances medically um, from practices that used to harm people, um, bloodletting and others, you know. This is one of those practices. Uh, it harms people, it does not help people, and um, and certainly in Ontario, we banned it for you, so I want to make that very clear. Um, you know, adults, do what you will, but know this, it doesn't work, it will probably harm you, and anything that doesn't work and will probably harm someone should not be part of any faith's practice. I want to ask you this. If you're just tuning in on Mixler, streaming the audio live, we're talking to the Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo, author of The Queer Evangelist. It's not called The Queer Reverend. It's not called The Queer Minister, The Queer Pastor. It's called The Queer Evangelist. And the word evangelical or the community of evangelical Christians, It's it's been an interesting five years or so, Sherry. And, and I think you probably know what I'm talking about. Stateside, the support for then President Donald Trump was remarkable. I mean, coming from the evangelical church, I still can't quite wrap my mind around it. Probably the least, quote unquote, Christian president in American history with the with the unwavering support of evangelicals. And then you take a look through COVID-19 and we've talked to a ton of evangelicals on this show that are reasonable, science believing community contributors. They've been wearing their masks. They've been taking their congregations online. I'm by no means painting with one brush here. But evangelicals have taken a few bruises along the way. When you look at who's been holding these cowboy church services and defying mask mandates and refusing to get vaccinated and the like, is the brand evangelical damaged in Canada right now? Well, I think it's damaged, which is one of the reasons I called the book The Queer Evangelist, because it shouldn't be any more than the word Christian um, should be associated with a political belief or a political practice. Um, so evangelism, you know, this idea of, sh of spreading and sharing the good news um, should be just that. And we, when we look biblically at it, it looks very different from it look, uh, you know, the way it looks if you're a gun-toting, you know, right-winger um, supporting Donald Trump. I don't think Jesus would recognize those people. I mean, he clearly was a pacifist, <laughs> number one. He clearly gave his life rather than hurt another, number two. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, when you look at his ministry among 
among the marginalized. Um, you look at a, a poor, wandering rabbi, you know, who helped those he came across and those who were rejected by everyone else. Th if that is not what I see when I see some Christian activity, any more than my Muslim friends, you know, meaning peace, um, would see their uh, faith reflected in, in someone who would strap, you know, bombs to themselves and blow themselves and innocent people up. So, you know, again, I think uh, those of us who are people of faith really have to do the hard work of claiming our faith and claiming words like evangelism back to its faithful origins. I consider myself really quite orthodox. Look, I'm wearing a collar. Um, and um, and I, you know, I absolutely support the tenets of faith. Um, and, and I think I'm pretty Christian um, and pretty high church sometimes too. So um, I'm happy to, you know, dis debate chapter and verse with anyone, but I think we need to reclaim these words and I think it's incumbent upon us to do so. And the challenge from the secular world, from humanists and atheists is real. And I think we have to answer it. The Reverend Dr. Sherry DeNovo is the author of The Queer Evangelist. You can follow her on Twitter at Sherry DeNovo. You can link to that from our Real Talk RJ Twitter account, and you can check her out online at sherrydenovo.ca. Congratulations on the new book, and thanks so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Ryan. You bet. Thanks to everybody that chimes in as well on the on the uh, text and, and on the tweets. Uh, I see that we have... Uh, an MLA, a member of Alberta's Legislative Assembly, watching this morning, which is great. It's great to see Janice Irwin chiming in. She says conversion therapy is still happening here in Alberta. The province won't act, so we need the federal government to act. Ashley says the way that conservative MPs, federal politicians, voted against banning cons uh, conversion therapy is one of the many reasons why I won't vote conservative again, says Ashley, a former conservative voter. Steph says conversion therapy is so barbaric. Air I said, Straya says, I'm pretty proud of the fact that my church was performing so-called union ceremonies for same-sex couples before same-sex marriage was legalized. James says, we, James says, I live in uh, Alberta, a province whose premier's brother has run conversion therapy clinics. Help will only come from other orders of government and the ballot box. Hey, speaking of orders of government working together, we're about an hour away from a, an announcement of a, a child care plan, affordable child care plan for the province of Alberta in cooperation with the federal government. If you're just tuning in now, uh, you can rewind the show. You can go back and watch our conversation with Minister Karina Gould, who joined us uh, about 45 minutes ago or so, leading up to the announcement. We appreciate her getting ahead of that for us. This show is made possible because we have amazing sponsors like the team at Local Waste. Maybe you've got a renovation project underway. Maybe that fall yard cleanup is, is coming to conclusion. Or maybe you're about to take something out before all the snow dumps and stays for the next six months or so. Hate to say it, but it's true. Local Waste has been handling construction, commercial, and residential waste and recycling collection for more than a quarter century, constantly growing in partnership with their clients. You can check out the services that they handle, including construction and demolition, online at localwaste.ca. And don't forget, Local Waste every Friday presents Trash Talk 
the chance for you to get whatever you need off your chest, you can send us your trash talk emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com. When we keep an eye on our social media, the hashtag RealTalkRJ, we remind you it's powered by the team at Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider. You know, you keep an eye on electricity and natural gas rates and how they can fluctuate. They have fixed rates and variable rates, whatever you're more comfortable with. And the best part about it, you're never locked in. So you want to change it one month? You want to switch it up? You, you're you getting different information on maybe where the rates are going? Then you can go ahead and give them a call or get in touch with them. Or maybe you like to just let it ride. Either way, you can find the fit that's right for you at parkpower.ca. A shout out to our friends at Friesen Brothers who are getting set for a big birthday party this week. Yeah, that's right there. Sourdough starter is turning six. It's true. Charlie, the Alberta sourdough starter, turns six coming up on Wednesday of this week. What does that mean for you? It means if you visit them at one of their 16 Friesen Brothers locations, you'll receive a free cinnamon spread plus 5,000 smart shopper bonus points with every Alberta sourdough purchase on November 17th. You can find out more at Friesen.com slash Charlie. I brought a loaf of fresh Friesen Brothers bread down to Calgary this weekend, took it to my parents' house toaster oven was out on sunday morning forget about it there's no loaf left unbelievable the fresh bread at Friesen brothers you can put it on your family table trust me no one will be disappointed a little bit later on in the program we're going to take a look at the results of our most recent question of the week we asked you about remembrance day some really interesting responses not just on how you recognize it or if you recognize it but what it means to you and and maybe what you think it should look like moving forward our question of the week this week is about the one-year anniversary of Real Talk. It's coming up November 23rd, and we want to pick your brain on that. We appreciated, uh, following a recent Friday roundtable, this email from Jenna, who said, I've been loving the show lately, especially the segments about ADHD and neurodiversity. She says, I would absolutely love to hear Dr. Janine Austin on your show. I think that they would make for an amazing interview You know, Dr. Austin pioneered the new but growing specialty of psychiatric genetic counseling. They were involved in the opening of the ADAPT Clinic in Vancouver, the world's first psychiatric genetic counseling clinic with the the goal that sort of helps patients understand the underlying cause of psychiatric illness in families, developing abilities to address emotional challenges associated with this information. We thought sold, done. We're putting in the request, and we're grateful that Dr. Janine Austin has agreed to join us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us, Doctor. Oh, thanks very much. It's lovely to be here. Nice to meet you, Ryan. So, I mean, this is always kind of part, it comes with the territory when you talk to pioneers, when you talk to people that are relatively the first in their field, a lot of audience members are going to go, I'm not 100% sure what psychiatric genetic counseling is all about. Can you give us the breakdown? Absolutely. And just to reassure any of the listeners today that are thinking that you're not alone. We know, in fact, that most Canadians don't know what genetic counselling is, uh, let alone genetic counselling for psychiatric disorders. So you're in good company if you're feeling a bit confused. Okay, so (laughs) So, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to ask, is this are we touching on when we when the word genetic implies that that this is the way it always has been. This is the way it was. This is the way it was going to be. Right. Absolutely. I know that's what it sounds like. Yeah. But in the context of psychiatric genetic counseling, that is absolutely not what we're talking about. So 
Um, genetic counseling is really a it's a it's a healthcare service in the same way that occupational therapy or physical therapy or speech and language pathology, right? And so genetic counselors are masters trained healthcare providers who specialize in helping people to understand what we know from research about the causes of an illness that runs in their family. Um, so that would include things like psychiatric disorders. Psychiatric disorders can run in families, but that doesn't mean that they're caused entirely by genetics. So in fact, we know that psychiatric disorders arise as a result of the combined effects of our genes and our experiences all acting together. And so in our genetic counseling clinic here that we established um, back in 2012, and it is, as you pointed out, um, the world's first um, specialist psychiatric genetic counseling clinic, um, that's really what we're helping people to understand. Um, and, and one of the things that we know is that when people have a psychiatric disorder, um, things like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, ADHD, you talked about, um, we know that people often feel uh, really guilty or ashamed or um, stigmatized um, because of having one of those diagnoses. And we know that relatives of people with these diagnoses can feel similarly. And so the service that we provide is really about addressing some of those emotional things that people attach to their explanations for cause of illness. Now, of course, every single interaction you've had, every case study you've you've witnessed, every person that you've worked with will have their own unique story and their Absolutely. own you know their own unique factors and their own unique outcome. But generally speaking, what are some of the more remarkable outcomes or, or maybe some of the bigger trends that you continue mm -hmm. to witness? Yeah, okay. Um, so actually, what might be helpful is to give you a bit of an example of it's. Um, so just to be very clear with people, this is the story I'm about to share with you is not one single individual. It's a composite of a bunch of different people who I've counseled over the years. And so it, to protect confidentiality and identity and all of that sort of thing. But the, the story is important because everything in it really happened. And because um, I think it illustrates just the sorts of things that psychiatric genetic counseling can do for people. Um, so I always like to tell a story about somebody that I refer to as Bob. And um, so I provided genetic counseling for Bob when he was a patient in hospital, actually, um, because he'd, he'd recently had a bit of a psychiatric crisis, so he wasn't doing very well. Um, the doctor in the hospital quite reasonably was saying to Bob, you know, if you want to get better and you want to get out of here, then um, you're going to have to take this medicine. And Bob was not keen at all to do that, basically. Um, however, he had seen posters up around the hospital about the service that we offer. And the poster said, you know, do you have schizophrenia or bipolar or schizoaffective? Would you like to better understand what caused your illness? And um, he, he decided that he would. And that was why he'd given us a call. And that was why I was there to meet with him. So when I do genetic counseling for people, I like to start out with a bit of get to know you chit chat, you know, rather than just launching straight into it all. Um, <laughs> so I asked Bob a little bit about himself and it turns out that he actually had a graduate degree in psychiatric genetics. Um, so <laughs> yes, I know that was my reaction too. Um, so I also have a graduate degree in psychiatric genetics. So we had a lovely little nerd out moment together. You know, oh, were you at this conference? I was at the same one. Um, all of that kind of thing. Um, but um, 
Yeah. So so I made some assumptions at that point about what I thought his explanation would be for cause of illness. I thought he would say genetics. However, when I managed to ask him, you know, can you tell me what you understand to be the cause of your illness? He said, bad life decisions. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? We were just talking about your graduate degree in psychiatric genetics. How how does this make any sense? And so he told me that, well, you know, I understand that at the level of the population for people in general, genetics is important. But for me and my own illness, it was this bad decision I made and the fact that I smoked way too much pot when I was younger, etc. Um, and so that was interesting. One of the other things we do as genetic counselors is take a family history. So I asked Bob about his family history of mental illness and I drew it out as a picture. Um, and I shared that with him together with a visual model that we use um, to help people understand how genes and environment work together. And the um, visual analogy that we use is one of mental illness jar. So in this concept, everybody has a mental illness jar. Right. And in order to be actively experiencing an episode of illness, the jar has to be filled all the way to the top. Um, and there are two different kinds of vulnerability factor that you can fill your jar with. Um, we talk about genetic vulnerability factors and experiential vulnerability factors. Everybody has some genetic vulnerability in their jar. Every single one of us. That's what we know from all the research that's been done. Um, but what varies between individuals is how much environmental, well, the amount of genetic vulnerability we each have varies, but also how much experiential vulnerability we have varies. Um, so anyway, I was using this visual analogy with Bob together with his family history. And um, to cut a very long story short, there was um, a, a big puddle of tears happened and um, words were used um, that included things like, I can see for the first time that perhaps this isn't all my fault. And I feel like a weight of guilt has been lifted. Um, so, and this is just from helping him to understand that it wasn't just his, what he thought of as being bad life decisions yeah. that caused his illness. Um, and when we followed up with him one month later to see how he was doing, he was actually out of the hospital. He was taking his psychotropic medications and he was doing much better psychiatrically than he had been in years. And he was able to explain to us that once he understood that there was a, a biological contribution to his own specific illness, then a biological treatment started making sense. So, you know, this might not be what people imagine when they hear the phrase genetic counseling, but this is what it can look like. Um, so, yeah, I hope that helps. You know, I, 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 I'm trying to pin down a movie and but I think that I can't because I think I've seen the same scene from about 30 movies. And it, it's that that sort of climax moment in the plot where it's very emotional and one person in either a fit of rage or a fit of sorrow or whatever it is, is, is all of a sudden embraced by the other person who keeps saying it's not your fault. Exactly. It's not Ryan. Your fault. We've seen it again in movie after movie. That's right. right. That's right. And that's exactly if I had to distill down what we're doing in psychiatric genetic counseling into one or two sentences, it would be exactly that. That what we're doing is helping people to understand this is not your fault. I don't care what you think you've done or, you know, what you know, it, it, it's demonstrably not your fault. But there might be things that we can do to help you better take care of your mental health for the future. 
right? Both of those two things can be true at the same time. And so really what we're doing in genetic counseling is helping people to um, to really internalize those ideas that, that, that it's not their fault, it's not their responsibility that they've become sick, but that there are strategies that we might be able to use to help better protect mental health going forward. I wanted to, uh, I, Jenna, who pitched this interview, she's a fan of your work. She pitched this interview, and I want to keep mentioning that to reiterate to our audience members that we really do appreciate their feedback on voices, expert voices they'd love to hear on the show. I didn't read from her entire email, but she does quote you, um, and, and, and I'd love for you to dig into this. Uh, you're on the record saying we don't have to be diagnosed with a mental illness in order to take action to protect our mental health. And that's I think that exactly that's, a, right. that's a hugely important message. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I, I agree. I think it is a hugely important message, especially in in the context of our current environment. You know, we've been living under pandemic circumstances for approaching two years now, and we know that it's been taking a huge toll on people's uh, mental health. You know, I was talking about how what we know from research is that these conditions, psychiatric disorders, that is, arise as a result of the combined effects of our genetics and our environment or our experiences acting together. And if you think about it at the moment, we're, we're all experiencing one of the most enormal, enormous um, environmental or experiential stresses that, um, that, that it's possible to have, right? So, so it's not surprising that, that there's so many people struggling at the moment. Um, so some of the things that we know about that, um, that can re be really helpful for protecting mental health. And um, so people are going to roll their eyes at this, but, <laughs> but, but it's really important. And I'm speaking to you all today as somebody who lives with mental health problems. Like I, I have my own experiences with both depression and anxiety. Um, and so this is all very personal stuff for me. I live it. So I, I know it, right? So things that we know about that you can use to protect your mental health, even if you've not had a diagnosis of anything psychiatric, would include things like um, regular good quality sleep. And I say that with full knowledge of just how difficult that can be, right? But 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 trying to find ways to get on top of one's sleep cycle um, can be really powerful. So sleep, exercise, this one is critical for me. Um, I have to go to group um, high intensity exercise classes three times a week to, <laughs> to maintain some sort of even keel for myself. Um, so, so some form of exercise, it doesn't have to be that, it can be as simple as a walk around the block every day, right? Whatever it is that works for you, finding something that's manageable and sustainable um, given where you're at. So sleep, exercise, nutrition, um, and again, good quality regular food if you can. And again, I say this in full knowledge that that can be very difficult for some people. Other critical things, social support, right? Social support. And yes, the pandemic has made that incredibly difficult. Um, but, but even things like this, Ryan, you know, you and I talking today using technology, um, you know, that can be a really important way to, uh, that we can still connect with each other, even if you can't physically be present, right? Um, and then, um, of course, finally, and, and really importantly, finding more effective ways to manage stress. Um, so, you know, many of us have the tendency when, when we're faced with stressful stuff to, I don't know, turn to alcohol or whatever. Like we've heard lots during the pandemic about how use of alcohol is increasing, et cetera. Um, but yeah, again, so, so finding more effective ways to try and manage things. And that's often again through our social networks um, can be really, really powerful in, in protecting our mental health. If, 
even for people who've not had any sort of diagnosis of anything. Um, yeah. Dr. Janine Austin, our guest, a psychiatric genetic counselor. Um, we, we've got a bunch of it's, it's an interesting theme and, and I can relate to it as well as I remember my first migraine headache when I was 11 years old and it just knocked me out for the count. I, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced in my life. Um, and, and my journey has been one where I can relate when people are, you know, curious yeah. to know whether or not there's an angle on this based on the work that you do with migraines. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, I don't specialize in migraines. Um, I d they are closely related, as my as my understanding mm. um, goes, in the sense that they are they tend to arise in the same way as I was talking about with psychiatric disorders. So it's it's not one thing or the other thing. Um, so in fact, we know that most conditions that affect humans, um, things like arthritis, asthma, diabetes, there's so many things, all of the common things that affect humans tend to arise as a result of the combined effects of our genetics and our experiences or an, our environment, if you prefer, all acting together. Um, so that jar concept that I was just talking with you about, that, that would apply to migraines too um but it, it's not it's not my specialist area i focus on the things that that people stigmatize the most basically speaking <laughs> how about this how about this segment speaking of stigma uh you, you you're telling us the story of bob based yeah. on your professional experience uh and 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 bob wondered if they had uh, smoked too much pot yeah and i'm curious to know your take on on let me say substance use i don't want to limit yeah. it to cannabis alcohol yeah. what have you opiates yeah. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah. So that's a very broad question. It's right? on purpose. Uh, <laughs> okay. So my thoughts are that what we know about substance use is that it tends to be something that people turn to when they're in pain. Um, there's a lot of history of trauma that tends to go. It's not always, but, but you know, there's, a, there's an association there for sure. Um, so the way that I tend to think about substance use is that um, it's something that re people reach for as a way of trying to uh, mitigate their, their, their pain, their hurt, right? Um, so what we know about substance use disorders is that um, there's a lot of genetic overlap between these conditions and things like depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder. So um, there's definitely a genetic contribution to substance use, um, but it doesn't mean that anybody's doomed to forever experience substance use. Um, so, you know, it's so they, they are, in fact, as you pointed out, one of the most profoundly stigmatized groups of conditions that people can have. Um, but yeah, so so basically, I think that um, in order to effectively get somewhere with with substance use, we really need to be addressing the the underlying issues beneath that. So in in the jar model concept that I was telling you about earlier, I talked to you about how we can use that model to explain how people get sick, right? That the jar gets full with genetic and environmental factors, and that's when a person experiences an active episode of illness. But the really cool th part about the jar is that um, we use an analogy about protective factors. So those sleep, exercise, nutrition, social support networks, et cetera, that I was talking about, the way that we um, use those in the jar analogy is that they act as rings stacking on top of the jar, making it taller so it can accommodate more environmental stuff without getting full. And the way I think about substance use disorders is what people are trying to do is they're using the substance use, they're trying to use it as a ring to make their jar taller. It just doesn't, it might work that way temporarily, but in the end, it ultimately backfires. 
right? So what we have to do is we can't just take the substance away and expect people to be fine. We that's not going to work. We need to be able to replace it with something. So it's about helping people to identify, um, you know, what's going on underneath the substance use and what other things they can do to protect themselves that that might not be quite so damaging essentially there was yeah. our conversation about adhd was a fascinating it was about an hour the round table and, and i felt like we were just getting started and we had some really fantastic sort of first person voices like you know voices of people with lived experience yeah. that were talking about adhd and all of the things and stigma and meds and approaches yeah. and best practices and workplace implications I mean, a whole bunch of stuff um, and, and it got me thinking about, and this is just anecdotal, but my experience, I mean, you know, from from back in the day where we'd be like, you know, oh, he's ADD, but you kind of joke about it. Nobody yeah, knew if it was right. like real. And then people questioned whether or not, you know, diagnoses were legitimate. And then you'd hear kind of the, you know, the curmudgeonly type like, oh, everybody, everybody's diagnosed. Or they're, they're trying to get everybody on Ritalin these days. And, and yeah. you know, and, and the conversations around medication and to, to expand that, to, to, to step outside of just ADHD and, and talk about, you know, the role that pharmaceuticals or prescription medication yeah. can play, uh, where would you characterize us at as a society with regards to how we approach uh, medication and some of the stigma around medication, what prompts some people to to either go off their medication or why some people may be hesitant to go on it? Uh, what's your angle on that and what's the message you'd like people to take away on that front? Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of um, stigma and difficulty that people experience around um, medication use. Just even speaking for myself, I use myself as an example. Um, I only started taking antidepressants for the first time at the beginning of this year, mm. um, despite the fact that I've lived with depression and anxiety almost all of my life. Um, and so for me, I think what it eventually, you know, so I, I, in the end, I decided I should really be practicing what I preach, <laughs> which is that sometimes, um, so, so medications in the, in the context of the jar analogy that I was telling you about, for people who've experienced mental illness, they can be a very powerful protective factor, a ring on top of that jar that makes your jar taller so it can accommodate more environmental or experiential stuff without your jar getting full. So people struggle with, um, with use of medications because with mental illness, there's this whole thing about like, what's me and what's my illness, right? Am I changing who I am by taking this medicine? And that's like a hugely profound existential question yeah. in the end. It's a very personal one. For me, what it came down to was a realization that all of the work that I was doing, I was working very, very hard on sleep, exercise, social support, finding more effective ways to manage stress. And all I was able to maintain was a very fragile state of mental okayness. It wasn't wellness, it was okayness. So I realized that I needed just, you know, the, the, the amount of the environmental or experiential stuff that I was dealing with just because of pandemic stuff was too much for my regular coping mechanisms to manage. So I needed a bit of extra help. Um, so that was why I chose to to try an antidepressant. And I was incredibly lucky because it, the first one I tried worked well for me. Yes, I had some horrible symptoms, um, side effects at the beginning for the first week and a half or so. Um, but after that, I noticed that it started actually making a difference to both my depression levels and my anxiety levels. Um, 
that's not true for everyone. I was fortunate. Um, so yeah, but it, but it, so it's the way I think about medicine is that it can be the little boost you need to get off the very bottom so that you can start engaging more in those other things that are almost impossible to do. Otherwise the sleep exercise, you know, nutrition, like having the motivation to do those things can be really hard to come by because of the symptoms of the illnesses that we're talking about yeah it's such a it's such a it's it's an important conversation to have you talk about exercise and wellness and nutrition and sleep and all these things that obviously contribute to a to a sense of wellness Um, and and then you'll have people also wanting to carefully point out and we've seen this flare up with COVID-19 as well people saying but that's that's not it in other words right like like sleep and and good nutrition isn't going to of course sort of no protect you alone no and it wasn't enough for me exactly Mm. so you know even with my very best efforts towards all of those things it wasn't enough to keep me in a in a place that was that in that I wasn't suffering Uh, you know that so I didn't feel that I could be there to help others as much as I would like to any longer because I was too busy fighting my own battles so for me the medication has allowed me to re-engage with people in a way that feels way more who I want to be, I suppose, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Your, your Vancouver clinic is, is the world's first it is, specialist yeah. psychiatric genetic counseling clinic. How do most people find you? How do most people wind up meeting with you or your team? That's a great question. Some people find us through things like this. So thank you for having me, Ryan. <laughs> um, but many people find us as well through their physicians. So lots of psychiatrists in the Vancouver area will refer their patients to come see us. Um, so yeah, a whole variety of different ways. But um, I always appreciate the opportunity to get the word out because we know that there's so many more people out there um, that we could be helping that we haven't yet seen. So it's wonderful to have this opportunity to chat with you today. Well, I know that the audience appreciates it, and 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 I do as well. We appreciate your time and your expertise on this. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's subject matter that we know is so important to to not just discuss and and sort of pass around you know different no, ideas right. and questions, but also just like you said to destigmatize. I think that the exercise is so important. And doctor, you've done an amazing job of it. Uh, doctor Janine Austin, our guest, a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Medical Genetics at UBC and executive director of the BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services Research Institute. Uh, Thanks for making time for us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ryan. You bet. Uh, You can follow The Good Doctor on Twitter uh, by simply checking out our tweet. Sarah Hoyle's tweet from earlier this morning from our account at Real Talk RJ. And again, shout out to Jenna P for the email to talk at RyanJesperson.com that led to that conversation happening. If you're reading a great book or if you're thinking about something, maybe and Jenna reached out because of our ADHD Real Talk Roundtable a few Fridays ago. She reached out and said, hey, here's where you got to take this conversation next. We appreciate that stuff. And, and that's happened numerous times on the show. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you that their business is bringing outdoor spaces to life and business doesn't stop when the snow falls. They're a custom landscape builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. Uh, You can check out their portfolio online. It gives you an idea of some of the projects that they've carried through from, from concept all the way through to completion from modern to traditional and everything in between their projects have one thing in common and that is happy clients i asked mike once at eden landscaping and he's been owning and operating this business for more than 20 years i was like what are you most proud of he's like well our problem solving for sure i said if i say that people are going to bring you their biggest landscape problems he goes perfect 
He goes, we won't stop until it's fixed. He says, but customer referrals are also huge. So from excavation through to finished project, trust Eden Landscaping for your full service landscaping. You'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also wanted to take a moment to remind you that our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have a couple of special edition blizzards ready to rock right now through the month of November. They also have that flamethrower burger. If the hotter side of the burger spectrum is where you choose to reside, you're not dissuaded by things like a flamethrower sauce or pepper jack cheese or jalapeno bacon. As a matter of fact, if that gets your mouth watering, we encourage you to check out the Flamethrower Burger at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And on the Blizzard side, the Oreo Mocha Fudge Blizzard, the brand new Sea Salt Toffee Fudge Blizzard, both worth your full attention at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Well, our friends, our research and strategy partners at Y Station have a new get real question of the week ready for you on our website. If you check out RyanJesperson.com, it's right at the top of the page. Q-O-T-W, our question of the week. You click on that on November 23rd. It's coming up. We'll be celebrating one year of real talk, uh, one year of real conversations with real people from experts to politicians to folks living the issues that are shaping our world today. We want to take a look back in this week's edition of our question of the week. We want to hear from you about the high points, the low points, what you'd like to see more of on on Real Talk Hack, what you'd like to see less of, and a special opportunity to tee me up. We're teeing up a special edition of Trash Talk. It's kind of a mean tweets inspired type exercise. No holds barred. So we ask you to chime in. We're hoping to see more than a thousand people chime in on this week's edition of the question of the week. Last week... We asked you about Remembrance Day, and we wanted to get into this. We appreciate the hundreds of you that took the time to chime in on November 11th. Your thoughts around it and what it should represent, what it does represent to you, and what you think it needs to represent moving forward. Sam, why don't we take a look at some of the highlights? These are presented by our friends, the team at Y Station. 94% of those of you surveyed honored Remembrance Day in some way in some way, shape, or form. So let's put it this way. 6% of respondents said, not for me. It's not something that's a priority to me, and and, and it's not something that I was taking action on. 7 out of 10 of you participated in some form of event, whether that was attending a service, whether that was 70% of you planned to honor the day with a moment of silence to start. 7 out of 10, a moment of silence at 11 o'clock. Here's another interesting stat. Nearly 7 out of 10 of you, uh, those of you surveyed, 7 out of 10 remain outwardly, supportive of the Canadian Armed Forces. Some of you may go, well, yeah, why the hell wouldn't you be? More on that in just a second. But 70% of you remain outwardly supportive of the Canadian Armed Forces. 11% of you specifically said you are unsupportive. So just over one in 10 are unsupportive of the Canadian Armed Forces. Now, here's the context. In light of recent sexual misconduct issues in the Canadian Armed Forces, 65% of those that took our survey last week are less supportive of military leadership, but still supportive of the members. 
That's one that kind of resonated with me. Sam, I noticed you kind of nodding your head. I don't know if you want to jump in on this, but I thought that that was an interesting point. People, people differentiating between the leadership of the armed forces and the servicemen and women. I, I've, you know, in, in weird parallels, I've actually thought about this, like in terms of the church before too, is like as an institution, it has a lot of problems, but there's very good people in it. And, and the armed forces, I think, are the, like walk a mile in the shoes of somebody who decides their career is going to be serving our country. Like it's just, you have to sort of have a little bit of reverence and respect for people that make that decision on your behalf to be there on the world stage. Uh, there are massive systemic problems in the leadership of the armed forces. No question there, but I think, you know, the people that, that make that choice really deserve our respect. Sarah, personal question. Does, does the, the sexual assault scandals and, and I mean, the, this culture that I think the average Canadian, even the, 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 the average Canadian that pays even a, just a, a general working amount of attention to the national headlines is aware that there are cultural issues within the Canadian Armed Forces. Does that impact or influence your perspective on Remembrance Day? No, no, not at all. I, again, I like I think <laughs> in every organization, large scale, there are issues. I'm not. Um, diminishing the issues that are happening in the military they are huge yeah but i know these are these are individual sacrifices um remembrance day is around individual sacrifices and choices one thing that it just keeps twigging at me is i keep hearing people talk about um servicemen and women and i'm like why can't we just say people because i feel like not everyone identifies as a man or a woman so are we and the fact is is in the military there's not necessarily an embracing of uh, folks that are not falling within to those two categories. So I'm just I'm I loved what the reverend said, um, brothers, sisters, and others. Hmm. I was just I wrote it down because I was like, boom, my yeah, head exploded. She was great. She was really good. Let's take a look at another. Uh, this was another interesting bit of data uh, gleaned from the team at Y Station. They stay up late on Sundays to go through these. We really appreciate the work they put into this. Just about one in two of you, forty-seven percent of real talkers surveyed felt that we should keep the flag the canadian flag at half staff in honor of the commitment made in light of residential schools 42 percent of you said that it's time to raise it uh, which is kind of interesting it also leads me to believe that there's about 11 percent of people that are maybe undecided or still making up their minds on this now when it came to the focus and sarah kind of touched on this I guess Sam did too, to a certain degree. Where is your focus on Remembrance Day? Is it on the present military? Is it on people that have served through conflict, through peacekeeping missions, served, hey, through ice storms and floods and forest fires on home soil, so to speak? This was kind of interesting. Uh, most of you sort of look to past conflict, right? So, so there was strong active debate in our open comments on the meaning of Remembrance Day. A lot of you wrote in that your grandparents, uh, friends of you that served, often warn you about, about glorifying war with ceremony and political rhetoric. Uh, many of you reminded us that there's a price to pay for war, not just on the battlefield, but also at home and sometimes for generations. Of those of you that said you didn't support the military anymore, you remember that 11%? Almost all of them, 86% of those, said it was at least in part because of recent sexual misconduct allegations and how they've been handled. So, so the lion's share there, 86%. Overall, one in four of you, 24% of those surveyed, felt that those allegations had no impact on your active support of the Canadian military. 
So how you marked the day, how you mark Remembrance Day, as mentioned, 7 out of 10, 70% of you with a moment of silence at 11 o'clock, 20% of you, one in five participated in an event online. How about this? This one surprised me. 17% of respondents, fewer than one in five, said that you wore a poppy, which was really interesting to me. 17% the same number said you'll thank a veteran in your life somehow. 14% would event, would attend an event outside of school or work. 5% would event would attend an event as part of school or work, which leads me to believe maybe that's the teachers chiming in. I don't know. I might be wrong, but 5%. 6% said I won't do anything to mark Remembrance Day this year. 17% wore a poppy. Are either of you surprised at that? One yeah. in five? Yeah, less bit, than actually. one in five? Yeah. I am too. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm probably going to get an earful and an eyeball full of it for this one. But I just, to me, like, I understand the significance. I wore one as yeah, well. I and I say you wore a poppy. And I made sure that I, like, I was very intentional about the type of poppy and how I sourced it. Like, I was I was very intentional about it. Yeah. Um, But I also understand that it's, it's not, I mean, over the weekend, I, we also received a, a tweet saying, Sarah didn't tweet about uh, her remembrance and ha- like that. What? That's disrespectful. And how could she, you know, her not recognize it? I'm like, everybody. Recog- What's this? Someone was going to your personal Twitter that you didn't tweet about Remembrance Day. Yeah. And, and they were calling you out for it because you had tweeted about your grandfather, which I think was great. But I uh, just so the show responded just saying, you know, everybody is different in how they remember and reflect and whether or not someone tweets, whether or not someone wears a poppy, whether or not like to me, it's it's about the personal, the personal. Like, how do you personally grieve? How do you personally uh, reflect? How do you personally show gratitude? I don't know who that person is. I didn't see that tweet, but that person needs to stay in their lane. I'm just going to go ahead and say that, Sam. Yeah, I'm like, pff, you guys are seeing I'm, I'm viscerally reacting here. First of all, I'm going to call it some misogyny because I didn't get a tweet like that and I well, didn't say I anything. It's misogynistic, <laughs> but let's, it's, I don't know. But like, okay, here's what I did on Remembrance Day. I wore my poppy. We went off air. Before I went home, I drove to Beachmount Cemetery where my grandfather, a service member, member is laid to rest. Yeah. And I laid my poppy on his grave. And I took a photo of it for my own personal thing. And I kept that off Twitter because it's personal. Yeah. So yeah, stay in it. your lane. Yeah, yeah nobody's got it. That's that's a weird comment. Uh, not yours, Sam. Uh, <laughs> but like, anyway. Uh, yeah, but I was, I was, this was, I mean, like bigger picture. It was like, it was all the people that were, I mean, Don Martin, the, the national political commentator I know was facing some fire because he was like, you know, Justin Trudeau's late. Justin Trudeau and the governor general are late uh, to the, to the ceremony. And then it turned out that, RCMP confirmed or at least the PM's protective detail confirmed that there was a suspicious package and then people were chiming into me and leaving comments on my Twitter about like the prime minister you going to mention that the prime minister is late to the ceremony and I'm sitting there going man it, like you know w- w- with due respect uh, this is you this is what you say before you take big swipes at people with due respect and then you could just take your big but like if that's where you if you just you just can't wait for Justin Trudeau to be late for something and that's where your head's at on Remembrance Day maybe you need to kind of read think where your head's at on remembrance day it's like criticizing what people are wearing at funerals get your head in the right spot as soon as i left the office it was wild on remembrance day i walk outside i'm getting in my car and i hear somebody say hey did you hear like they're talking to somebody else not me yeah did you hear justin trudeau was late for the remembrance like 
what the hell's wrong with that guy? And I was yeah. just, I, I thought about, and then I was like, I don't feel like getting into it, but I thought about being like, there was a bomb threat, dude. <laughs> like, I, just, I don't know. Dude. One of you said, you know, we asked, um, you know, how did you mark Remembrance Day or what did you do? One of you said, since the loss of my father, who was a veteran two years ago, Remembrance Day has become so painful that sometimes I avoid it entirely, but it was an important day to him. So I try. One of you said, I mark Indigenous Veterans Day, November 8th. Uh, and I don't otherwise participate when you said I'll send a caring message to my son-in-law acknowledging that I do not and cannot truly understand what he experienced in Afghanistan. He's tried going to events, but they're a trigger and he no longer attends my thoughts with your family. When you said uh, every Remembrance day, we take, you know, I take my husband and kids to Queens Park Cemetery where my grandparents are laid to rest in the veterans field of honor. It's not an official venue or an official place for Remembrance Day, but somebody always plays a taps on a bugle somewhere off in the distance. It's a lovely annual tradition to say hello to my grandparents on this day every year. Another one of you said as a veteran that served in Iraq, thank you for your service. I will spend the time in silence with my family around me. I'm thankful to have them. My good friend paid the ultimate price and never had this gift. Another one of you said I have friends on deployment and in reserves. I'm a pacifist by nature. But their sacrifices even now are not lost on me. We need service people in a democracy. What about this? We asked, why have you chosen team at Y station does a great job. So your survey, you know, people's surveys will look different. If you say yes to something, you'll get it. It's like choose your own adventure in a way. You'll get a different subsequent question than a person that would say no. So if you said I have chosen to not participate in Remembrance Day, you would have had an opportunity to say why one of you said uh, I grew up in a military family immediate and extended remembrance for veterans is daily for me it's not limited to a singular day the majority of Canadians couldn't possibly care less for veterans as this country continually refuses to support them in multiple aspects another one of you said as time is more removed from the events of World War One this becomes less relevant trying to turn it into a support our troops Military industrial complex parade is not something we should support anymore. You know, it's turned from being about the people to be about the industry and a gross forced authoritarian patriotism event. Another one, you said, I don't know why so many people want to be in a permanent fight. Another said, it's a day to remember the death of my family members who've died in service in a racist system being Métis. I see their sacrifice as one for the crown, not a sacrifice for our nation. And we asked when you contemplate sacrifices made in war on Remembrance Day, what do you think about the most? One said, there's a photo online of a lady. I can only assume she's a wife or a sister or a good friend. She's laying on a blanket on top of a soldier's grave. And I I used that photo as a home screen for a long time until somebody asked me if I knew who she was. I said, no, not her in particular, but I know hundreds just like her. Far too often, we don't think of sacrifices that loved ones at home struggle with every day. Another one said, I worry that people take democracy for granted. People died for us so we can enjoy a democratic nation. Another says, I I think of my grandfather who served in the Second World War, the double sacrifice of indigenous veterans who came home to enfranchisement, a loss of status or a legal connection to their first nation, as well as exclusion from veterans benefits and legion activities. We asked if you think that the way that we present Remembrance Day should change as fewer and fewer veterans survive, World War II veterans. 
four out of ten of you said we need to focus more on veterans of other conflicts. We need to focus more on understanding what they've been through. Meantime, three out of ten of you said no. Remembrance Day began to remember immense sacrifice in the world wars, and it's important to history that we maintain that context. I totally disagree. On additional mentions, one of you said we need to wade into the mess that is armed conflict. Do the ends justify the means? And if not, how do we honor the dead? And if so, then how do we honor the honor the mental health consequences when conflict is less violent or nonviolent? Another one of you said we need to focus on all who've made the ultimate sacrifice to serve our nation in warfare, no matter how long ago or how recently we need to remember the bravery as well as the evil perpetrated by all countries in these wars. Remembrance is the path to peace. We're so grateful for the time that hundreds of you take every week to chime in on our question of the week. As mentioned, this next week's uh, takes a look at the one year anniversary. It's coming up of Real Talk on November 23rd. and We'd be grateful for your participation. I told you over the weekend I had a chance to swing by Sherwood Dodge. I wanted to see what all the hype was about with these Grand Cherokee L's. This is the first Grand Cherokee in history with the third row of seating. That's the extended length Grand Cherokee. Looks a little bit different. It's got that custom grill. Totally different ride. It's amazing. It's got a lot of room inside for your family or for whatever you're hauling around, but it's not like a big, massive truck. You know what I'm saying? It's got a great feel on the road. Really enjoyed taking it for a spin around town, taking it out on the highway. They've got them available now. A great selection at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They're just off their biggest sale of the year in October, and that momentum is continuing into November now that they've got great selection. For the first time in 14 months, the lot is starting to fill. There's never been a better time in the last year and a half to take a look at a new whip or their pre-owned selection you can link to St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge online under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Also, big shout out to our friends at Kubi Energy. Jake and his team have been providing solar energy solutions to power your life no matter what walk of life it is. Whether it's residential, agricultural, commercial, industrial, they're a full-service contractor for both residential and commercial solar power systems. I've been pumping their Instagram account recently. I really encourage you to give them a follow. The Kubi Energy Instagram gives great examples of the type of work they're doing doing in many if not most circumstances for far less of an investment than you might think the times are changing my friends and kubi energy is leading the wait for it leading the charge the first day of every broadcast week sam i feel like that one was for you my man every appreciate every, it yeah it's usually a monday sometimes it's a tuesday our friends at kubi energy get our week started off on the right foot with one of our favorite features it's called Positive Reflections. You know, this builds off our Remembrance Day special episode of Real Talk. And Kevin took the time to send us an email. Just big thank you in the subject line. He says the show today, he wrote this just hours after we went off air, incredibly powerful and raw. And honestly, Kevin says, I think it might be the best episode you've done. Uh, he says, I, you know, I was in tears 
through the broadcast and I don't regret any of that emotion for a second. Ryan, he says, you you said all these conversations help you process what days like Remembrance Day are all about. And that's certainly the case for me, as are most days on Real Talk. He said, you know, you read an email from a Real Talker uh, that said that he's got an analytical mind and that shows like Real Talk help them process things. And, and Kevin says that describes me to a T. You know, you talk about how you have trouble relating to people who have served, given the freedoms we have and the the relatively easy lives we lead, entirely a result of sacrifices made during these wars. Kevin says, I couldn't help but realize during that November 11th broadcast, we, we keep focusing on soldiers who fought and, and who continue to fight, and it's nearly impossible to relate to what that must be like. Uh, retired warrant officer Stephen Ferry, the medic, described, as did former war correspondent Catherine O'Neill, that we're talking about human beings and defined experiences and traumas that result from serving their country to ensure freedoms are not lost. We must remind ourselves, says Kevin, the intense consequences and toll that war takes on families and in homes for generations. He says that movie 1917 that popped up during the show was so incredible. It reminded me when I was in high school in the late 90s. You know, we've been learning about the world wars, but through textbooks. And, and we got a sense of what it may have been like, but not really until our history teacher allowed us to watch Saving Private Ryan in class. I remember it giving me chills throughout. I was overwhelmed that that painfully realistic depiction the movie portrayed. He says, I was captivated. I felt obligated to watch to the end. I finally realized what war truly meant, and it hit me, left me extremely grateful to those who serve and for the freedoms we enjoy. Kevin said, I'm grateful beyond words for this real talk community and how we can share these moments together, even the quiet but powerful ones. We process them together, sometimes in our own ways, but the show gives me the ability to not just process meaning, but to process things from different perspectives. And I hope it provides all of us peace in truly understanding what all this means. He says it was an incredible and beautiful episode. Thanks to the team and the audience for truly honoring what Remembrance Day is all about. That from Kevin. Well, Kevin, that filled our bucket and it's got our focus in the right spot as we endeavor to continue to provide these conversations ongoing. Thanks for taking the time to share your personal perspective, your experiences, and what filled your bucket as a result of a conversation right here on Real Talk. Coming up tomorrow, November 16th, we're going to talk to author Dorothy Palmer about representation. It's a call for arms for disabled and seniors' rights. Plus, we'll know more about that child care deal with the province of Alberta, the federal government. And of course, we'll dig into what it means for you, regardless of where you're tuning in from. Make it a great Monday, friends. Thanks for joining us for Real Talk. We'll see you again tomorrow. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Editorial Producer Sarah Hoyles, Technical Producer Sam Brooks, Managing Director Josh Dunford, Account Coordinator Tanya Franklin, Merchandise Operations Katie Cook-Chivers, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.